Thank you for joining us for another episode of A Journey Through Stockache and Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and here as always is Matthew Demby. Hi Matt. Hi Gavin, how are you and how are you listeners? Thanks so much for all your support and feedback so far. We've been blown away by the response. Indeed, indeed. And now we've got another jam-packed episode for you as we tackle the next four singles produced by Stockache and Waterman. They weren't all big hits, but they are all pretty well known by sore fans and they all have interesting stories behind them, at least we think so. And we have not one, not two, but three interviews to share with you as we talk to Haywood, two thirds of the Three Degrees and Hazel Dean. So let's dive in. Matt, what have we got up first? Well, Gavin, it's the fourth and final single from Dead or Alive's Youthquake album, My Heart Goes Bang, bracket, Get Me to the Doctor. And if their last single, In Too Deep, was a concession to radio and the pop middle ground occupied by people like Culture Club, this definitely was not. It's a full-blooded return to the dance floor and possibly their most in-your-face single since that's the way I like it. Let's give it a listen. That was My Heart Goes Bang, which came out in September 1985. It got to number 23 in the UK, 21 in Ireland, 12 in Japan, and it just missed the top 40 in Australia, coming in at 41. Gavin, I think this song is Pete Burns' musical vision at its most brutal and its most unbridled. In fact, I think it probably gave a few record company executives heart attacks. What do you think of it? Look, I have to say, I don't love My Heart Goes Bang. It's my least favourite of the four singles from Youthquake, and I kind of find it a little bit tedious, all that bang, bang, bang bang it's a little bit nursery rhyme-ish oh Gavin I can see the shock on your face right now you're gonna scold <laughs> me aren't you I think it's just so much fun it's one of my favorites because it's just so full-on it's just so Pete Burns it's so camp it's so heavy it's so in your face I think the lyrics are really funny some of the verses are so so funny they're just laden with Pete Burns humor and and all that wonderful innuendo that he used to do so well it's definitely a return to that no holds barred high energy sound that they perfected with You Spin Me Round Like a Record, but it's a fourth single. It should not have been released before this, and I think it was probably yeah, a fitting way to end the Youthquake album. So I don't hate it, it's just not my favourite. Well, they put a lot of work into this. It's got a completely new vocal, it's got a new sound to it. They did some interesting mixes, which we'll talk about in the bonus material. I think that Pete really felt that if you're going to lift a single, you've got to make it something that fans will want to buy if they've already got the album. There's no point in just lifting something straight off the album that sounds exactly exactly like what you've already got. I think it's different enough to the album, but it's still got all the key punches that the album version had. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think there's nothing worse at fourth single stage than releasing just the album version. You've got to do a radio edit or in this case, a remix or something to make it more appealing to the record buyer back when people bought records to shell out their money for something they possibly already own. So I do admire the fact that it was reinvented for the single release. I kind of think the chart positions were about right. But uh, we also saw a bit more of Pete than we had seen before, didn't we? 
Yes, we see a bit more of Pete in the video. You see both his eyes through the whole thing. The eye patch has been thrown in the bin. He wanted to have a whole new image here. And in fact, this video is way gayer than anything they've done since that's the way I like it. All that sort of hanky in the back pocket stuff. There's not one single woman in this video, actually, unlike in In Too Deep, where you had the two lovely ladies sitting astride their seahorses. In here, you've just got models and bikers and the guys striding up and down the dance floor, smashing guitars and uh, being quite butch in some ways. It's quite funny for some a camp song that it got given the Young Talent Time treatment. And so for listeners who aren't from Australia, Young Talent Time was the Australian version of Kids Incorporated or the Mickey Mouse Club, shows like that where teenagers sing the hits of the day. Danny Minogue, Tina Arena, they were both on Young Talent Time. And Young Talent Time, of all people, did My Heart Goes Bang, Get Me to the Doctor. It's hilarious. It's just so funny that they left, you know, for one thing, all these wildly inappropriate innuendos. I guess they were disguised enough that little kids aren't going to know what some of these things are suggesting. For a sort of a lesser Dead or Alive song to be given uh, such a, a strong treatment on a primetime Australian family kids show, it's just hysterical. It's on YouTube, everyone. Check it out. From the high energy sound Saw had started off their career with, we now move to the R&B sound that they were starting to explore. And with Princess As I Am Your Number One having done so well, it seemed perhaps it was a good direction for Saw to be taking. The next R&B artist to release a Saw-produced single was another solo female singer by the name of Haywood. The song, Getting Closer. Haywood there with Getting Closer, which was the next sore foray into the R&B sound. And there was quite an active R&B scene in the UK, as well as importing stuff like the SOS Band and Mai Tai and Colonel Abrams and Steve Arrington from overseas. There were British R&B artists who were quite successful around this time in 1985. There was Jackie Graham, DC Lee, Five Star was starting to take off. They were, I guess, a bit more funk R&B than, than soul. And so Haywood was another one of these artists from that scene who hadn't had so much success up until this point. She'd released four singles before coming to work with Saw. A Time Like This, Single Handed, I Can't Let You Go and Roses and none of them had cracked the top 40. Roses eventually would when it was re-released. That didn't change unfortunately with Getting Closer which peaked at number 67 in the UK. It did make number five in New Zealand. It was phenomenally successful in New Zealand. But Matt, what do you think about Getting Closer? Are you a fan of this song? I think it's a nice little song. I think what it lacks is the big Stock Aitken and Waterman chorus, something that lifts and makes the hairs on your arms lift up. It doesn't have that. It's just a groove. Well, not just a groove. It's a good groove. I, I enjoy listening to it, but I understand why it wasn't a, a breakthrough hit in the UK or in Australia. Yeah, I'd agree with that because that's the word that popped into my mind. It, it, it is a groove rather than, yeah, a big pop moment. I feel like it was a good match for Saw to work with Haywood after Princess. I kind of feel like if they were going to go down this road, someone like Haywood was a really good fit for them because she was different enough from Princess that it wasn't just like doing the same thing over again, but kind of complemented the work they did with Princess. So perhaps this is a good time to hear from Haywood herself about her background and coming to work with Saw. Those singles did um, unfortunately miss the top 40. What were the barriers to mainstream success for soul and funk and R&B artists back then? What do you think? <laughs> 
It's an interesting question. And I didn't mean that in a, in a facetious way, actually. At the same time when, you know, Madonna was around, choices were made about who the uh, publishers were going to put in their magazines. So I think that uh, black music, because that's what we're talking about, some of the stuff I used to do, people used to lighten my skin and stuff like that. So I think I, that's what I think that... Uh, at that time, priorities were somewhere else. In terms of my records, I don't know. I actually don't really know why they didn't break the top 40. But guess what? I just appreciate the audience that I gained through my releases and how my fans felt about the music. And so I was kind of underground. You know, people used to be like, you don't know what to do with her. Like, CBS used to say sometimes, but they didn't know really where to put me because I'm not a, a gospel singer or gospel-based. And um, and being black and doing pop were... At, I think probably Shalimar were the closest to it, but this was before Rihanna and Beyonce and all these people doing uh, more pop stuff. Yeah, before Whitney as well, really, because Whitney was a bit of a game changer. Yes, absolutely. But, that, you know, having said that, I think that uh, CBS, they did stick by me and I just kept like, you know, with roses, they just like put it out so many times until it, <laughs> until it went in there, you know. The way the business worked then is that a record would get released and then a label would say, okay, we have these five artists, who are we going to do priority? And they would decide two or three artists out of that many 10 records. So your manager had to fight for you to get on a priority. And what priority meant was we're going to stick with this record for as long as we can. And anybody out of that priority list, they just kind of threw it out there. That's all the politics of it, you know? I just let the team do what the best thing they could do and the record company do what they can do. And I just sang and wrote. and <laughs> Did the fun stuff. Just did the fun, 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 F-U-N. Okay, now let's get to Stock Aitken Waterman. Who came up with the idea to work with them? If my memory serves me correctly, which I couldn't really rely on that, but I believe that they approached, uh, they, they approached the label and that's how I met those guys. I will say for CBS, actually, with the marketing especially, you know, they really did put me out there. Even though those records didn't go into the top 40, they were making a lot of noise. So what did you think of Getting Closer? I believe they wrote that for you specifically. I like Getting Closer a lot, yeah. I really enjoyed it. It was fun doing the video. And it was a really quick process in terms of how it was recorded. So I just think I just went in there twice. And how did you find it other than quick? It was super easy. It really was easy. It was like, it, that's what I mean by quick. Just went in there, track was there, the vocal out. I don't remember being there very, very long. You know, it was my, my, my time with them was like so short because I didn't end up doing an album or anything like that. What part did Matt and Mike and Pete play? I mean, did you see much of Pete? I saw Pete um, like a couple of times um, I met him. When I was in the studio, he wasn't there the time I was there. It was just with... Um, the other guys, um, yeah, so he wasn't there when we were actually doing the recording, but when he was talking about what we wanted to do and stuff like that, Pete was there. To me, it seemed it was model, really modelled on uh, the Motown. I felt like that they were modelling themselves on that. Come in, you know, work, you know, like professional. Right. So it's interesting Hayward says that Saw actually approached CBS to work with her. It seems like they were really sort of proactively trying to build a portfolio of uh, soul pop stars in the UK. Yeah. I mean, obviously they didn't have people like Princess falling into their lap every day of the week. Obviously Princess had been a backing singer who'd come to work with Stock Aitken Waterman and they built her up into an artist. They clearly were like, right, who should we target? And they probably looked at Haywood and saw, okay, she's had a few singles out. We like what she's doing. This is kind of the 
type of thing that we want to do. Why don't we write something for her? Why don't we approach her? And so that's exactly what they did. I guess it's, yeah, flipping what had happened before instead of the major labels coming to Saw with their acts. This was Saw going, hey, can we produce you? We really like what you're doing. And it seems like they did give her a bit of a push, the old label, because back when these records were being released, I was a huge consumer of British pop magazines. I really felt an affinity with British pop that I didn't uh, find with Australian music, most of which I didn't really like. So I just ate this stuff up. And I always saw these ads in the mags for Haywood's records. And I was always like, who's Haywood? Who's Haywood? Because she never got played here. The only song of hers that I ever heard at the time was, I believe I heard Roses once played on TV. I never heard Getting Closer. And it's a real shame because it is a good song. Well, Matt, you're not the only person who thought it was a good song, apart from all of New Zealand. At one point, Getting Closer was considered as a single for Kylie Minogue. Soul fans will know this. Kylie Minogue did record a version of Getting Closer and it was possibly going to be the follow-up to Locomotion in Australia and it ended up as a B-side to Locomotion in certain countries outside Australia. Let's have a listen to Kylie's version of Getting Closer. So that's Kylie Minogue before she even started working with Stock Aitken Waterman recording a Stock Aitken Waterman song. Matt, what do you think of Kylie's version of Getting Closer? Look, it lacks that magic. As much as I love Kylie, and I've always loved Kylie, I was with Kylie right from the very beginning. I bought her first single, I bought her first album the day it came out. So please don't question my Kylie credentials. But this was not the way for her to go. If this had been released, I think it would have struggled to make the top 10. It just lacks that pop fire. It doesn't have the big chorus that people would have been looking for. I think it would have been a mistake and I'm so glad they ended up going straight to Stock Aitken and Waterman. And I've got to say the production isn't as great as Saw's production. For those who don't know, this was not produced by Saw. It was a cover done in Australia. And I think it's just a fantastic turn of events that Kylie ended up getting her own Saw song, going straight to the source and doing I Should Be So Lucky. Because had Getting Closer been released instead of I Should Be So Lucky, I think things would have been very different. I don't think Getting Closer would have worked in Australia. I feel like it was a bit of an odd choice actually for Kylie to record a cover of and I don't like her version of Getting Closer anywhere near as much as Haywood's version. I think Haywood's version suits her and it suits her voice. I don't feel like Getting Closer suits Kylie at all. No and I think that probably the big wigs at Mushroom recognised that and shelved it pretty quickly. So now is a good time to check back in with Haywood and hear her thoughts on Kylie recording Getting Closer and also how she returned the favour kind of by recording a Kylie song. But there's a catch. Anyway He's Haywood. Getting closer, I knew that she had that, uh, that Kylie had had that as a B side. I, th- I thought it was great. I'm really supportive of other artists doing their thing, so I, th- I thought it was great. And then you returned the favour many years later by recording a Kylie song, Look My Way. How did that come about? I was putting together an 80s show set, and then I found out that Look My Way had originally been written with me in mind. I was like, oh, well, this is cool. This is because it's very soulful, you know? And yeah, so uh, we recorded that and did a video for that. So how come you didn't end up getting to record it back in the day if it was written with you in mind? (laughs) No one played it to me, that's why. Yeah, I would have loved to have done that one, but everything is as it is. I never have regrets in life. I always believe that things happen as they're supposed to. I obviously wasn't supposed to hear it for some reason. I had to walk a fine line after recording it, though, because I kind of got some cra- a crazy response from some diehard Kylie fans, people that were like literally upset 
that I would even dare to record it. <laughs> I just thought, uh, you know, so um, apart from that, I just navigated that and just tried to be like, you know, just chill out. It's okay. It's just music. It was written for me. I just creatively just trying, you know, just playing, you know. I'm sure Kylie doesn't know, doesn't care, would be perfectly fine about it, you know. But like people were like, whoa, I was like, man, sometimes people need a hug. Well, there's something I didn't know until I spoke to Haywood was that Look My Way was actually written for Haywood. Matt, what do you think about the two Look My Ways? I quite like Kylie's version. It's a really good album track from that first album. It was kind of different to everything else on that album. It showed a little bit of versatility and, and variety from Kylie. And I don't mind Haywood's cover. Yeah, I've got strong memories of Look My Way from when uh, Kylie's first album came out, especially when she did a live slot on Hey Hey It's Saturday, mm-hmm. which was a big primetime variety show of its time. She did a totally live vocal to Look My Way. I have really clear memories of that, and she just completely aced it so it's a song that sticks strongly in my mind i think haywood's version is fun but my heart will always be with kylie i think haywood's version is a bit of a different treatment of the song i mean i guess there was no use haywood just doing a carbon copy version of kylie's original her version is is actually bizarrely a bit more pop if anything it's just nice how it came full circle and i wonder what would have happened if haywood had released look my way back in 1986, 87, when she was working with Saw. I wonder why she never got to record it. If it was written for her, why it didn't find its way to her, why she didn't get in the studio and do it. Because I don't know, I feel like if Haywood had have done Look My Way in that soul R&B vibe that Kylie did it on the album, it actually probably would have done quite well. Yeah, I think so too. It was certainly a song of its time. And I think that if anyone was going to ace it, it would have been Haywood. So Getting Closer was the first of two Haywood singles produced by Stockhaker Waterman. We'll hear the other one in an upcoming episode. Next though, we're going to look at another Saw song that would be later covered by a different Saw act. And it's also another R&B track, but this time it wasn't a newcomer that Stockhaker Waterman worked with. Instead, it was a girl group with a string of hits to their names already. Snapped up by Supreme Records, The Three Degrees also recorded two singles with Stockhaker Waterman, and the first of them was The Heaven I Need. That was The Heaven I Need by The Three Degrees, which came out at the end of September 1985 and hit the UK chart on October 5, 1985. Unfortunately, it didn't get very far up the UK chart, stalling at number 42, oh so close to the top 40. It did make the top 40 in New Zealand and the Netherlands, but it didn't give The Three Degrees another hit in the UK. And they actually had quite a lot of success in England. They were an American, well, they are, they're still around, an American trio. And in the UK, they had dating all the way back to 1974 they reached number one there with when will i see you again which is their best known song actually let's hear a little bit of that now when will i see you 
Yeah, and what a classic that song is. I grew up listening to that on my parents' AM radio over and over again. That was a real favourite and it's certainly a part of music history. So The Three Degrees were really well known in Britain. They had primetime TV specials. They had a string of hit singles. They worked with Giorgio Moroder and Harold Faltermeyer at the height of disco. They were a really established act. And so for Sokak and Waterman to work with them was kind of a bit of a coup in a way. Yes, they hadn't really done much for a few years, but still they had this back catalogue that meant that they were kind of A-listers that Saw were working with. And I think there must have been hopes that this union between Stockhead and Waterman and the Three Degrees would have launched some kind of comeback for them. Yeah, it's a shame that it didn't because I really like this song. I think it's a really classy piece of soul pop. And watch the video, my God, these women are so polished, not only vocally polished, but see their stagecraft. It's just stunning. They really knew their stuff. The dance moves, it was just beautiful to watch. And by the way, that video also features an appearance by Princess and Stockhead and Waterman. So if you haven't seen it, do check it out. That's right. And you can see all the videos to the Stockhead and Waterman singles at stockhagenwaterman.co.uk. We spoke to Valerie Holiday and Helen Scott from The Three Degrees. They were two thirds of The Three Degrees alongside Sheila Ferguson at this point. The Three Degrees is one of those girl groups where the lineup has changed over the years as members have come and gone. But Valerie and Helen are kind of mainstays of the group. They're still in the group now and they were in the group back in 1985. And so they talked to us about working with Stock Aiken Waterman and here's what they had to say. That was kind of a up in the air period for us. We were in the process of having managerial issues and just trying to keep up with what was going on as far as the music world was concerned, constantly touring. So between those two things, it was a bit maddening at times. So uh, we were kind of dormant as far as the record industry was concerned. So to come upon uh, Pete Waterman to offer for, you know, well, hey, why don't you come over to Supremes? Let's, let's see what we can, you know, we can come up with. And so how did you meet Pete? Gosh, now see, you're, you're asking me something that happened <laughs> so long ago and so much has happened. So much water has gone under the bridge since then. Helen, do you Remember how we met Pete? I think it was at a function that we were all attending. Was it with Princess? I don't know. I remember taking a picture with her and them. I think it was at a function that was being given for her. I know they had an interest in us, and I think we were invited to whatever. It was a launch of Say I'm Your Number One, and I think that's how we physically met him. And so what was his pitch? Come and do a single with me? Come and do an album with me? What was the plan? Because we were trying to maintain some type of visibility as far as records were concerned, he said, you know, I've got this song. Why don't you just come over? Let's, let's see what can happen. Let's get together, see what we can do. And that first one was really fun. That's the heaven I need you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had fun with that one. Right, and they thought you'd be perfect for it. Yes, we worked out the, the bits and pieces on the vocals and uh, magic. And what was the recording session like? How was it working with, I guess, more Mike and Matt in the studio? Yeah, Mike and Matt were crazy. They were crazy fun. That They made it really fun. Um, because, of course, when, when you're doing a new song, you, you put down one piece and then you see, you know, okay, what can we add to this? So it was a collaborating, I, you know, thing going on. So it, it worked out very well. Um, as producers, they, they were great. They were great. They were great because sometimes, you know, people can be very, uh, uh, you, you feel kind of like you can't say anything or, you know, put forth any kind of idea or anything, but they were, they were wonderful as far as that was concerned. 
I wasn't just standing in front of the mic and sing when I tell you. <laughs> no. <laughs> they were really nice. I quite enjoyed that time that we spent with them. I really did like the music that they were putting out at the time. I liked the two singles that they gave us. I'm sorry that the relationship didn't continue any longer than that. But, you know, I was grateful for those times. It was um, enjoyable. It wasn't a uh, hard press kind of recording session at all. It was very easy. They gave us a chance to be us, didn't try to change anything about the three degrees, just gave us pointers as to what, how they wanted things to go with the songs that they had written, but we were allowed to be us. They'd only started together in 1984, whereas you guys had years of history and, and, you know, all those chart hits. They probably would have been very respectful of that because you were the industry professionals. Where are we now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the compliment. Oh, my. Maybe. But, you know, as artists and when you go in with people that you really don't know, first time in the, you know, in the sound booth and you want to make sure that you're pleasing to someone, you know, it's it's their music. They know how they want to hear it. So we were always, you know, just, okay, well, what do you want? What kind of sound do you want? You know, or whatever the normal questions that are asked. And again, they were very easy and obviously just accepted what we had to offer. Now, in the music video for The Heaven I Need, the three of you were standing around the same mic in the studio. Was that how you recorded or was that just for the camera? Sometimes you we, you do pieces um, on individual mics, like you'll have three microphones so that they can separate or turn up or turn down, whichever needs to be. But that was because the song itself was, was a, there was a lot of harmony parts in it. It was good for us to be able to be on one mic this way we could blend better. I think that this song was a beautiful example of legends working with new sounds and new producers and coming up with something that was pretty damn good. Not knowing whether or not this got strong radio support, it's hard to see if this song got given the chance it deserved. It certainly seemed to have some money behind it. I think that The Three Degrees had a strong history of moving with the times. I mean, certainly they went from being a soul pop act into disco. They've got two really good disco songs that everyone would still remember, Given In, Given Up, which was covered in the late 90s and was a huge hit again. And then also The Runner, I think they had form when it came to embracing the new, didn't they? Yeah, they did. In fact, let's hear a little bit of The Runner now. So that was The Runner by The Three Degrees, which came out in 1979. It was actually covered by Bananarama recently. But yes, The Three Degrees were able to keep up with the times and move from one genre to the next. It surprises me that it wasn't better received. Here's what Valerie and Helen had to say about The Heaven I Need not cracking the UK Top 40. Were you surprised it wasn't a bigger hit? Yeah, I thought it would have been. Only because, well, not only, but because one, I thought, I thought we did a pretty decent job with the song, one. And two, I thought that it was something that, you know, we were releasing and and hadn't done some things for a minute. And so I just thought it was a good opportunity. The fact that it charted, period, I was grateful for. Um, It would have been nice if we had gotten a little higher up, but did not. Having that as your first kind of intro into disco and and your audience not quite being disco type people, um, we were curious as to how far, you know, 
this would go and how our audience would accept it. This era was kind of a comeback, wasn't it? I think so. I hate that word, though, but I I guess guess you could say that, yes. The 80s kind of thing was a little different. There was so much music out that was, you never knew which direction it was going. And I think that's good for an artistic side, but you didn't have any niches, so to speak, to slot people in. So it was like potluck. Whoever was successful was and whoever wasn't wasn't. Now, it would be remiss of us to talk about The Heaven I Need and not talk about the cover version of The Heaven I Need by Big Fun, wouldn't it, Matt? Yes, let's talk about that because, you know, The Three Degrees and Big Fun, really two acts that couldn't be further apart, could they? No, this is true. And actually, Valerie and Helen had never heard the Big Fun version of The Heaven I Need. I told them about it and they were quite surprised. They were quite interested to hear it. So I sent them a Spotify link. I don't know what they made of it. I did warn them. If you haven't heard the Big Fun remake of The Heaven I Need, it wasn't a single. It was on their album, A Pocket Full of Dreams. Have a listen to this. Ugh, it's just not great. Yeah, quite the contrast, isn't it? While we're on the theme of remakes, let's move on to our final song for the episode. Matt, what have we got? Yes, it's time for Hazel Dean's first single with EMI. After two top 10 smashes on minor dance label Proto back in 1984, followed by a couple of disappointments that failed to reach the top 40, Hazel grabbed the chance at a career with a major label. And the first product of that label deal was They Say It's Gonna Rain. Let's have a listen. That was They Say It's Gonna Rain, released back in October of 1985. This one only made it to number 58 in the UK, but did far better elsewhere. Number one in South Africa and number six in both Norway and Sweden. What did you think of the song, Gavin? It's got a bit of a history being a cover and it was also her first single with a proper video. I love They Say It's Gonna Rain. I love everything about this song. I didn't know until very recently that it was a remake. That fact just passed me by for many, many years. It was originally sung by an artist called Kerry Delius. I think it was a genius song to cover because it wasn't successful by Kerry, so no one really knew it. It felt like an original song. And everything from the Zulu chanting to the big drums to the production, the chorus, everything about this song works for me. I love it a lot. I first became familiar with it, though, in its extended version form on the Always album three years later in 1988. And it was, again, many, many years before I actually heard the seven inch version of it and as a seven inch version fan i actually didn't mind too much because this is one of those songs that you can never get enough of i went back exploring some of hazel's old sort of more obscure singles because i didn't know some of her earlier stuff too well and when i heard they say it's going to rain for the first time it jumped right at me to me it always had really clear top 10 potential so the fact that it didn't really do the business in the uk or australia i think is a bit odd i think perhaps it was lacking strong radio support because this to me sounds like it should have been a smash for her. I agree. And this is probably a really good time to hear the Carrie Delia's original of They Say It's Gonna Rain because Hazel's version just really injects so much life into it. I'm alive, though you can break my heart. 
Now let's hear from Hazel herself about the decision to remake the song. Well, I heard it. Funny enough, the person that played that song to me was Ian Anthony Stevens because we actually did a few more little tracks together. And he played me that song and I just, I loved it straight away. Her version, I changed it around a bit. I reconstructed the song, if you like. It never seemed to have a proper chorus through the song, if you listen to it. And so I reconstructed it so it made more sense as a song. It's got the verse, but it's got that chorus as well because it's such a great, they say it's gonna, you know, it's such a great, great chorus. It just was never used enough in the original version. But yeah, it's a fantastic song. It was so unique, so different. Yeah, that's interesting hearing Hazel talk about how she changed the song up. She certainly made it her own. It really does feel like her song. And I think that's why it was included on the Always album, because there were other singles released between They Say It's Gonna Rain and the likes of Who's Leaving Who and Maybe that didn't make it onto the Always album. So for They Say It's Gonna Rain to basically wait three years to appear on a Hazel Dean album just shows that clearly some people thought it was worth bringing to the public's attention one more time. That's right. And now let's talk about the video. As listeners would remember, she did film a video for one of her proto singles, but forbade it to come out. So this was her first major video, romping around in Malta with a love interest. This is what happens when you go to a record company like EMI. You get money. You get money to spend on videos. You get money to do them properly. But what I don't understand is where was the money to promote the record? Maybe it was promoted in the UK heavily. I don't know. But for some reason, it didn't just take off there. It was successful, particularly in South Africa, as we've said. Let's hear from Hazel about the international success of They Say It's Gonna Rain. It was a huge, huge radio hit down in Florida as well. Massive down there. I mean, I literally have walked down the streets of, of Miami and I've heard that, you know, I've heard it as a walk down the streets, which is which was quite exciting, really. You know, that song, I, that, I got a lot of travelling out of that song, I have to say, because it was a big hit. Number. Especially South Africa is unbelievable. Although I didn't go to South Africa at the time, I didn't get to South Africa until um, I think it was like the early 2000s. I started going over and it, it was really weird because I knew it had been a hit over there, but I didn't realise it was such an iconic record. When I started appearing in some of the clubs, it was like going back to the 80s. I mean, people were queuing up down the streets. It was like, oh my God, this is like being back in the 80s. But I didn't realise it was such an iconic record. So uh, yeah, that, that was that was exciting. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us as we continued our journey through Stockhake and Waterman. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the four next singles, including another one of those major label bands that Saw worked with. Hi, this is you, and I'm telling chart beats about my journey with Stockhake and Waterman and the band Brilliant. Hi, this is June Montana from Brilliant, and I'm telling Chart Beats my journey with Stock Aitken and Waterman. That's right, we talked to two thirds of Brilliant, and we'll hear more from Princess as we discuss the follow up to Say I'm Your Number One. That's a great song, isn't it, Matt? It's wonderful. Now, in this episode's bonus material, we are going to take another deep dive into Dead or Alive. You can guess whose idea this was. <laughs> we'll be talking a bit more about My Heart Goes Bang. Matt's going to share an interesting snippet about that track and one of the extended mixes and we're going to discuss the singles campaign for youth quake plus you'll hear more of our chat with the three degrees where valerie and helen talk about their success in the uk and staying part of the group all these years later for access to all the bonus content head to chartbeats.com.au to subscribe for as little as two dollars a month it does help us fund this passion project of ours and look out for us on social media where can people find us on social media matt they can find us at chartbeatsau on twitter and on instagram Search for Chartbeats on Facebook and you can find me at Mr. Matt 
Denby on Twitter. And we do love engaging with you on social media, so keep sending us messages and comments and all that kind of stuff. It's great to hear from you. But until next time, bye for now. See you, everyone. Bye.